Welcome to the podcast of First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We are a welcoming and progressive Unitarian Universalist congregation, deeply committed to love and justice. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. This is a very short story from a Chinese book that is 7,000 years old. Once there was a man who owned a lot of tools, and one day he noticed that his axe was missing. He was pretty sure that the neighbor boy had stolen it. That boy, he thought, he looks like a thief. He walks like a thief. He talks like a thief. Well, while he was trying to decide what to do, should he call the authority? Should he talk to that boy's parents? The man went out to turn over his compost pile, and there he saw his axe leaning on the fence right where he left it. The next time he saw that neighbor boy, he thought, hmm, he looks and walks and talks like any other child. We who believe in freedom cannot rest. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. We who believe in freedom cannot rest. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. Until the killing of black men, black mother's son, is as important as the killing of white men, white mother's son. We who believe in freedom cannot rest. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until they come. Good morning. Good to see you all again. I think I'd like to think about this as part two of my last sermon, from my last sermon. Take you back a few years. My day started off with my favorite breakfast of scrapple, applesauce, and scrambled eggs. Then off to find my little gang of 10-year-olds for stickball. We would use a broomstick and a cut up pink rubber ball that we put cut in half so we'd have two balls. And this was a game that required some skill but a whole lot of bravado. As the day progressed, it got hotter and hotter. So we did what all kids in Philly did on a hot day. We went to looking for old boy, Mr. Willie, to ask him to open up the fire plug. We then put a makeshift sprinkler on the hydrant and voila, segregated urban summer bliss. As the day wore on though, lots of the adults started to gather at both ends of my block. Men and women talking, some crying in a spirited, focused, hyper-animated manner with loud voices of disappointment and anger. I ran to the corner where my father was and asked him what was going on. He said that they had killed Dr. King. I froze. But somehow only one word stuck in my mind, the 
word was not Dr. King. The word was not killed. The word that stuck in my mind was they. An individual, James Earl Ray, killed Dr. King. But my father said they, a group, a pack, a system, they, they, they were dangerous. They were the people we saw on TV. They were the people who owned the stores and they were the police and the firefighters and the bosses that the working men in my neighborhood had no kind words for at the end of the workday. Normally, they occupied a lot of psychic space for my family and my community, and now they occupied my imagination and by nightmares because they had killed an important man, a man that I had seen in person just a year earlier in the park up the street where he told us that they would change and that justice was coming. As a kid, I could only ask, who are they? And why are they bothering us? Why are they messing with us all the time, Daddy? Why couldn't they just leave us alone? Well, after a few years later, around 13, I, I watched on TV a group of black men stand up to them with leather jackets, berets, and fiery words that transformed me from a little colored girl in the fire plug to a little baby black panther. I got my pigtails cut off and got me a nice afro. I found an old beret that my grandfather brought home from Europe. I went to my first Black Panther education program. And it was there that I learned that they were not the answer to my freedom, but we were. The Panthers taught me that I was a descendant of enslaved people and not a descendant of slaves. I was told by the Panthers that we were not meant to survive but we did. It was here in these education programs that I learned about Juneteenth. At first, it was just a funny sounding word, but then I learned the story that continued to resonate with me for years to come. In case you don't know the story of Juneteenth, here it is. So it's a couple months after General Robert E. Lee surrendered on April 9th, 1865, basically ending the Civil War. Then Major General Gordon Granger steamed into the port of Galveston, Texas, with 1,800 Union soldiers, including a contingent of United States colored troops. Now, Granger was there to establish martial law over the westernmost part of the defeated Confederacy. So on June 19th, two days after his arrival, Granger goes to the balcony of some hotel in downtown Galveston, and he reads, General Order Number Three. He reads General Order Number Three to this huge crowd of people. And it says, the people of Texas are informed that in accordance with the proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free, he pronounced. This was the first time now, you gotta remember, that any in the crowd had heard that the Emancipation Proclamation had been signed two and a half years earlier. White slaveholders had suppressed the news of the decree freeing the slaves in the Confederate territory, not under Union control yet. And they wanted to do it just to get one more harvest from the free labor. Word says that we walked down the street singing and shouting, a Texas free woman recounted. Black men pitched their hats high in the muggy June air, according to another report. 
Men and women screamed, we's free, we's free. Others left town in what became known at that time as the scatter. The jubilation following Granger's announcement in Galveston moved across Texas very quickly, reaching a quarter of a million of the enslaved people in Texas. A year later, a spontaneous holiday called Juneteenth formed from the words June and 19th, and it began to be celebrated by newly freed black people in Galveston and other parts of Texas. And in 1867, Austin, the state capital, saw its first Juneteenth celebration under direction of the Freedmen's Bureau, which was the federal agency established to provide relief to people after the Civil War. That's the story. So over the ensuing years, I went to Juneteenth celebrations like many of us. They moved all over the country and most black communities had some recognition of it. I'd go to the celebration, I'd listen to the music, ate the barbecue and drank the red Kool-Aid while the old folks told stories and danced and played pinochle. But I remember my great grandfather who would be propped up at these events as the oldest relative. Because Richard Johnson, he was born just a few years past the emancipation, probably 1870. Not sure how old he was since he didn't have a birth certificate. Great-grandfather would be at the head table just scowling at everyone. He would have been about 90 in the 60s. He didn't talk much about those bad old days, as he called them. But when it came time for him to speak, he also always spoke of the Emancipation Proclamation as a coffee break. And he didn't want us ever to celebrate too much because he says, we ain't done with slavery. Now we kids and the young adults, we would look at great grandfather and say, look at what's happening, great grandfather. We're making progress, the civil rights laws, blacks moving into nice neighborhoods. I remember saying, look, my daddy's the first black engineer in Campbell's suit, great granddaddy. He would just look at us through those thick Coke bottle glasses and frown. We would respectfully argue with him and eventually we would just drown him out with the sounds of Motown and brush him off in our minds as being that old slave mentality. But was he wrong? You see, the irony of Juneteenth is that it is symbolic of the constant delays and coffee breaks black people have experienced when seeking any kind of fairness or justice from the United States. Appealing to America for black people has always meant waiting for something to be sanctioned, considered, debated, reviewed, or better yet, let's get a commission to study that for 10 years. It is like we are playing an endless 400 year game of red light, green light. You remember the playground game. You line up and move forward as fast as you can based on what the leader says. Then the leader at any moment can say red light and stop you in your tracks. Let's play. Green light, emancipation, reconstruction, we, we run, scatter, find our family, create institutions, start schools, farms, towns, colleges. The government creates biracial legislature, black senators, enfranchisement. Oh, Oh no, self-determination for blackness, hell no. Red light, black codes, Jim Crow, KKK, birth of a nation. Green light, affirmative action, 
recruitment and development to create a more equitable workplace and better integrated schools. Oh no, 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 no education for blackness, hell no. Red light, reverse discrimination, quotas, whites are oppressed and being cheated. Green light, Voting Rights Act, designed to enforce the voting rights guarantee by the 14th and 15th amendments, secure the right to vote for racial minorities throughout this country, especially in the South. Red light. Look at Georgia last week's election. And so on and so on and so on. This stop and go, this delay can wear a person out who believes that reform and restoration are possible. It seems that every time we insist on our inherent right to dignity or assert that our humanity be recognized, the remote button of white America goes to mute or pause. Think about it. When you mute the television, you quickly assess the show, the commercial, and decide it's not worth listening to. So you go on to something else. Think about it when you scan the radio station. You hear a fraction of a beat, and you know it's not for you, and you go to the next station. Your mind is made up. Sort of like that Amy Cooper in Central Park. She saw a black man who was a bird watcher. That can't be right. Help police are being attacked by an African-American man. I mean, she put it all on video. This quick, easy, almost autopilot dismissal of black humanity and our requests are rooted deeply in the psyche of America. It is not racism at its root. It is anti-blackness at the root. I want to share a scene with you from Spike Lee's masterpiece, Malcolm X. And in this scene, he is not Malcolm X yet. He's a con artist in prison named Red who's being mentored. Please show the video. And I'm going to tell you, God is black. God is black. Everybody knows God is white. Everything the white man taught you, you accepted. He taught you you were a black heathen and you believed him. He taught you to worship a blonde, blue-eyed Jesus with white skin and you believed him. He taught you that black was a curse, and you believe that. Did you ever look up the word black in a dictionary? For what? Did you ever study anything that wasn't part of some con? What the hell for, man? Come with me. Black, destitute of light, devoid of color, enveloped in darkness, hence utterly dismal or gloomy, as the future looked black. Pretty good with them words, ain't you? Soiled with dirt, foul, sullen, hostile, forbidding, as a black day. Foully or outrageously wicked, as black cruelty, indicating disgrace, dishonor, or culpability. And there's others, black male, black ball, black guard. Yeah, well, there's some more, right? Let's look up white. Here. Read. White. Of the color of pure snow. Uh, reflecting all the rays of the spectrum. The opposite of black. Uh, free from spot or blemish. Innocent. Pure. Something without evil intent, harmless, 
honest, square dealing, and honorable. Wait a minute, but this 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 was written by white folks, though, right? I mean, this white white folks book. It sure ain't no black man's book. So what we reading this one for? Because the truth is lying there if you read behind the words. Frank Wilkerson, professor and director of African American Studies at UC Irvine, is a brit brilliant critical theorist. And he's developed a philosophy along with other black scholars called Afro-pessimism. This is not the popular notion of pessimism that things will go bad or negative thinking. This is a head-numbing intellectual dive into $30 words and concepts that are not for the intellectually faint of heart. Afro-pessimism is a reoriented understanding of the composition of slavery. Instead of being defined as a relation or forced labor, is more accurately thought of as a relation of property. The slave is objectified in such a way that they are legally made an object, a commodity, to be used and exchanged. It's not just their labor and power that is commodified, as with a worker, but their very being. They are not recognized as social subjects and are precluded from the category of human. To be included in humanity, one must be socially recognized, and the life should have social value. The slave as an object is socially dead, which means they are open to gratuitous violence as opposed to violence contingent upon some transgression or crime. You are continually judged not on your actions, but on your being. Frank Wilkerson wrote an amazing poem that's in one of his newest books. The poem is very short, and it said, For Halloween, I washed my face and wore my best school clothes and went door to door as a nightmare. The slave as an object is socially dead, which means they are alienated beings. Their ties of birth not recognized and familial structures intentionally broken apart and generally dishonored or disgraced before any thought or action is considered. The social death of the slave goes to the very level of their being. According to Afro-pessimism, the slave experiences their slaveness ontologically as a being for the captor, not as an oppressed subject who experiences exploitation and alienation, but as an object of accumulation and fungibility. After the non-event of emancipation, slavery did not simply give way to freedom. While whites did not legally own blacks, they simply reorganized domination and the former slave became a racialized subject whose position was marked by lack of freedom and a full-on assault. The very idea that blacks were creating lives living in self-determinant families and creating communities following the emancipation was anathema to whiteness. Black sovereignty could not stand. This could not be tolerated for non-humans. It was against nature. The same structural violence that maintained slavery remained upheld explicitly by the police, which were former slave catchers and white supremacy generally. So the equation was the same. 
Black equals socially dead. Proof of it today can be found in the hundreds of videos of Black people doing human social things who have been interrupted by white women mostly calling the police to say, no, this human behavior cannot be. Black children selling lemonade on the sidewalk, no. Singing in the park, no. Eating on a train, no. Studying in the library at Yale, no. Jogging in Georgia, no. Sleeping in your bed after work as an EMT in Louisville, no. Walking, talking, loving, breathing, being. Just as wanton violence was a foundational element of slavery, so it is to blackness. Given the ongoing accumulation of black death videos at the hands of the police, despite the fact that you can see it, it becomes apparent that a black person on the street today faces open vulnerability to police violence, just as the slave did on the plantation. That there has recently been such an increase in media coverage and yet little decrease in murder. Last night, another unarmed black man killed in Atlanta and followed the suspicious hangings in California of two men found hanging from trees in the last two weeks. It, this reveals the ease with which anti-blackness violence can be ignored by white society. There's a new I Can't Breathe video from Tulsa, Oklahoma. And the cop says, when the man says, I can't breathe, he says, I don't care, and kills him. When one is black, one needn't do anything to be targeted, as blackness itself is criminalized. No amount of prison, imprisoned cops, body cameras, or citizen review boards will eliminate this. Now, some of you may hear this having not read this dense theoretical construct that informed this philosophical theory and say, Reverend Karen, but look at the protests, look at the rallies, look at the book, White Fragility. It's on back order at Amazon. Look at Nike, Netflix, the NFL, all have Black Lives Matter banners on their websites. And I say to that, neoliberalism has a way of attaching its spores to every movement, so be careful. Sound pessimistic, Afro-pessimism. Well, pessimism has always been more beneficial to black people than optimism, particularly in situations where you are waiting for news about an outcome and there's no opportunity to influence that outcome. When the outcome is not as good as optimists like to have planned for, they take a bigger hit to their well-being and experience greater disappointment and negative mood than do your garden variety pessimists. I have never had very high expectations of white people ever treating me fairly. It's just something I would not ever do to myself. So with that as a foundational construct, I do not expect things to go well when the police stop me or when I'm walking along a dirt road and a red pickup truck slows down to size me up. In fact, studies have proven that defensive pessimists experience significantly high levels, higher levels of self-esteem when confronted with crisis. This may be due to the increases of defensive pessimist confidence to anticipate and successfully avoid the negative outcomes they imagine. Defensive pessimists use their negative expectations to motivate them to take active steps to feel prepared and be more in control over outcomes. So being a pessimist isn't necessarily a bad thing. 
It's what you do with that pessimism that makes Black Lives Matter. Now, my beloved UUs, we UUs love theories, constructs, positions, debates, juxtapositions, and inquiry. We are also the children of the Enlightenment and the land of everything can get better and will get better. We are the people of love, the people of equality, the people of hope, justice, and good deeds. And the great thing about being a UU is that I can hold these communal optimistic aspirations in relationship with my Afro-pessimism. I can do this because my dreams do not impact my waking hours. Friends, theories and theologies and philosophies are formulated to explain, predict, and understand phenomena. And in many cases, to challenge and extend existing knowledge within the limits of a critical assumption that we may have made. And as I wrestle with the intellectual challenges of these theories, Afro-pessimism has served me this week. It helped me put energy into building culture, generating resources, finding family, and creating a materialized humanity. Afro-pessimism has provided me with a day-to-day theory that is like a bomb on an open wound that I bear from wanting America to love me. Afro-pessimism keeps me and any, many other black people alive. Afro-pessimism settles my stomach. It relieves my anxiety. It helps me leave an abusive relationship with America who beats me every day and says at the end of that beating that they are sorry, but beats me again the next day. I have left that relationship to survive. My address is unknown. My phone number has been disconnected. And since I am not human, my identity non-existent. Yet my abuser is still flailing about looking for me in classrooms, on dirt roads, in the break room, in office buildings, in retail businesses, and in government. But I have left the building. I have made myself free like my ancestors before me who knew the emancipation was just a coffee break. So I decided that I don't need to celebrate Juneteenth anymore because I have not yet gotten the message that I am free. Ashe and amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We are a welcoming community that finds strength in the diversity of identities of all who find inspiration and comfort here. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text FIRSTUNIV, that's F-I-R-S-T-U-N-I-V, to 73256 to make your gift. If you are able to join us in person for Sunday worship, we'd love to see you in church. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.